Hi, I'm Nina Schacht. And I'm Jane Shake. And you're listening to Gut Talks. Double G, U, double T. Hi, everyone. I'm Maria, and welcome to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T, a podcast I started to connect, reconnect, and meet like-minded individuals and put some karma on the board. In this episode, we put together an existing segment of season three. So instead of listening in batches, you get to listen to the entire conversation. We had over 89,000 downloads to date, starting from zero, with no sponsors. And it's a 100% self-funded podcast. Thank you so much for hanging around and listening to the episodes. And I have one ask only. I'd love to have your feedback to keep the show up to your expectations. So drop me a line at maria at gut.com, And like, share, or leave a review if you can. Now let's get started. I'm looking forward to this episode with you, Nina Schacht and Jane Sheik. I just like to try to pronounce different names. Like last week, I had like Jacob from Denmark. So that was also trying to figure out how to pronounce the name. Not big new, it's nuances more than anything. So I'm looking forward to this because you're both in the research space. So we're going to deep dive into that. You both have a background in psychology. You're both into theater. And that's how we met, actually, using theater for service design. So we met in person. So that was nice. And I was um, just intrigued and interested in your profiles, like both of you. And it just so happened that you're both in Berlin. And I thought, you know what, let me ask you two to be together on the podcast. So this is like completely unscripted. We don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, but we know that it's going to be about research, why it's important, who is it important for, things like that. But we're going to go to stories because you have lots of interesting stories that you shared when we met. So let's get into it. But before, I, I want to get started a bit just to get to know you a bit more, even though we've seen each other in like ridiculous situations, trying to do stuff like <laughs> acting, like right? But I mean, I don't know who wants to go first, but I want to ask about who were you as a kid, a teenager growing up? What is it that got you to where you are today? And don't take this as a very like, in terms of like extremely deep levels of, you know, understanding, but are there moments that you can recall that you reflect on today that make you think, okay, I, I was that kind of kid. I did this and now it's all making sense. That's a tough one. Jane, do you want to start? I, I, yeah, I can actually, because I, it's something that I have often thought about because when we might come to later, the job that Nina and I both do is something that a lot of people kind of end up accidentally. Mm -hmm. So you think back, how did that happen and why do I enjoy my work so much? And um, I think I was, I was the oldest of uh, four children. So and my mom was the kind of person who was very unpredictable. I'm going to put it this way. There was, um, yeah. Uh, and I, I think I learned very, very early on how to read people. I think it was something that I had to learn, that I learned as a kid. And when, maybe I, I don't know whether it's something that you're kind of, um, you're born with to a certain extent or whether your socialization kind of, throws you into situations where it's good, you know, it's a good survival strategy to be able to read other people and to read the room. Uh, so it's kind of something that always has been part of my 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 life. I, I think I was aware of it quite early. And then another thing that has always bothered me, I can really remember some moments, I have a very strong memory of being about 13, 14, 
wedding in the country. We lived in the country. We moved to the country when I was 12. So I was like dislocated from the capital city of Scotland to the middle of nowhere. Um, and I remember standing waiting for the school bus and having an argument with the other girl that was standing waiting with me. And I remember just thinking, how did we get here? What can you study to figure this out? Why do people always end up fighting? Why do people never understand each other? You know, why is this all this human stuff so hard? And I also also have a very, very strong sense of justice. And also, I think connected to, I'm going to finish the last sentence, why I ended up in the business I'm in now, I also have this really strong urge to explain myself all the time. I always feel you have to, you know, and I always, and I also felt that we were often being unjust to one another because what I, even as a child, I really, really hated it when somebody said, you did that because, or you did that to annoy me, or why did you do this? Or why did somebody do that? Well, of course she did that. She's that kind of person. And I always felt, no, that cannot be the truth of the matter that people mix up what I learned later in my in my, in my, in my studies where states and traits. Uh, but I always felt that there was such a lot of injustice around putting pointing fingers, putting people in boxes saying, you only did that because, and I was really aware that, that it that it's, must be more complex. Thank you for that. Just so you know, I started asking this question on like during season three, and I find it uh, always fascinating just to get to know people more. And because lots of things you were saying, I can relate to because I overthink. One of the things that made, you, made me realize that I tend to overthink is when I see a mosquito or a dog, I wonder what's the point of your life? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, Nina. I'll leave it to you. Yeah, well, uh, welcome to the club of overthinkers. I think I'm an overthinker as well. I think my story was rather, oh, let's put it that way. As Jane puts it, I think everyone I know who's working in our industry, it's coincidence. No one ever, you know, like planned to go into that direction. And I always, I don't know, I was always the child that I think was the diplomatic person bringing persons together i don't can't find the right word words right now and i've been standing in front of groups quite early you know it's just like okay i don't know stop fighting or hey we want to reach this goal why don't we do it this and that way so i not in the sense of a leader but rather in the sense of being the facilitator kind of of groups and i guess that's what i'm still doing nowadays so i think that's how my loop um, closes from how I how I started, where I came from, and what I'm doing today. Thank you for that, and and I like also the fact that you mentioned. So, thinking about it, you realize that lots of people in the industry or in that space actually got pushed or uh, propelled into that area, kind of by mistake. You're saying <laughs> before we delve like deeper, <laughs> I know that could last for three hours. Like, but what is user research like in a nutshell? <laughs> Who wants to attempt? I don't know if we know. <laughs> don't know if we have the answer. It's um, one of those things where you can give different answers for one question, right? Yeah, and I think just also as a background, actually Jane and I were initially coming from market research. And I don't know whether you follow the discussions. However, there are unfortunately big discussions going out there. What is the difference between market research, user research, is it the same? Is it similar? Where is the overlap? And I think there are whole conferences about that. So it's 
Let's put it that way. I have a very strong opinion on it. However, I tend to fight with people. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. I know you have user research slash market research. Sometimes I just put in the same bucket and sometimes yes, yes. completely different. Uh, so, so yeah, let's go for it. We, we want strong opinions. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I like to cross out the first word, you know, being it UX, market research, whatsoever. I always say I'm a researcher, meaning I'm following standards i'm following methods i'm yeah trying to maintain quality and for me let's put it that way the only difference between user research and market research is the item or the thing i'm studying however what i'm doing for me doesn't really make the difference so user research for me is rather about studying the digital product whereas market research is rather studying the physical product And yes, there are big arguments going on, like, okay, but uh, market research, doesn't it rather also feed into um, what, physical products, um, but also into a different point in the life cycle of a, of a product? Whereas user research quite often is rather seen as in the beginning, development, and market research also goes strongly into a product that's already alive. We do have a campaign out there. We're talking about marketing and all these kind of things. And that's something that user research actually doesn't cover. But for me, it's a question of, hey, I'm using the same methods. I'm just jumping in at different points into the life cycle of a product, being it digital or physical. And Jane, I mean, this podcast is uh, audio, but also we do lots of video snippets. We're going to be doing more now. So I could see your head like... My body language. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I'm going to be putting this as video because I just loved it. How <laughs> you're just like moving and like, okay, what's going on her mind? Yeah, while I, while I, totally, I totally agree with everything Nina said. And it is, I think it's a, it's a discussion that is totally superfluous, you mm -hmm. know, trying to decide. Because the same as Nuna said, I, I consider myself a researcher and maybe my past into and through research i've been doing this for decades honestly yeah. decades was a different one than people who today call themselves ux researcher but i think i'm not sure i've got really bored of the conversation and um, at the end of the day where people our jobs are to understand people other human beings i mean i haven't unfortunately not had the opportunity to do research yet with many animals but it may happen so our job is to understand the human condition in which sounds really big but of course depending on what the you know what our customers need i mean our my i always say that my job is to help my customers understand their customers better full stop and i think a user researcher or a ux researcher would also sign that so mm -hmm. uh, and we're also using the same methods and um I think what, what, uh, when Nina made is a distinction between digital and physical products, that's where I felt uncomfortable because as I was working when I started in, in whatever you want to call it, we used to call it market research. Then we called it insights. Then we called it consumer research. Then some people called it marketing research. And then suddenly it was like there was this whole new, you know, uh, group, uh, that was kind of growing in parallel. They called themselves user researchers. But back in when the, fir the first agency that I worked with, we were doing a lot of, testing in the digital sphere because it was you know we were like how does this medium work what's this www thing how can we change you know how does that change the way people get information how does it change the way people interact with brands and products so today i think people have a lot of apps and tools and they work on purely digital products 
But I remember with my boss back then at Summer Research in Mannheim, um, we made this crazy setup because suddenly we had this urge to, we were getting asked by our clients, oh, we're making a website. Oh, cool, you're making a website. And yeah, we want to understand um, about the interaction of our customers with this. And you, if you can remember what websites look like in the zero years. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. still, it was what our customers came to us because they were the, we were the only people who were doing research. It was the sort of the time when the German Online Research Society was was founded. So it started to kind of grow in a different direction. But we built real apparatus, like we connected computers and screens and uh, audio devices so that we could actually watch people were interacting with these clunky websites in real time and record them and the clients could watch them remotely. Hello, hello, dear people, 2023, we were doing this in 2000. And I remember that my boss was like, oh my God, how can we make it work in, in sync, sync it so we can watch in real time? And then uh, he sent me to the university to go to the music room, to the production studio where you could like, there was all these material. And he told me to get this instrument, some kind of, I don't know what you call it, a modulator or something that makes music when you, you know, synchronizes and modulates different musical instruments and input output. And we put that in between all the computers and we made this thing. I mean, we were talking about these, like these computers with the, like they take up all your desk, the ones, you know, yeah. Um, with a desktop and the monitor. Yes. Um, so we were, and, and that's something that, although it makes me feel really old, like to think about it at the same time, when I hear people talking about, you know, user research, UX is only, is only digital and market research is only physical. And I'm like, wait a minute. And since then, we've always been involved in digital. And I think I really don't know where I would make a diff distinction uh, I don't really have a lot of experience in doing what the UX researchers do. So I'm not really the right person to talk about it. But that was just my my take on, you know, and I think we use the same, we have the same questions. We, have, we, we answer the same questions. How, what motivates people? What's their need state? Uh, what are the barriers for people to do something, to not mm -hmm. do something? How can we facilitate enabling people to do stuff we use frameworks like jobs to be done we use the same you know methods and we were in market research we were using methods that now have been like packed into brand well it's almost a brand into methods like design thinking or lean startup but we were doing that mm -hmm. i'm not trying we're yes. not trying to show off here i'm just saying we were doing that and i remember when the design thinking hype kind of went off i was like oh what's this this is really interesting and i went to some workshops to find out and I was like, yeah, okay. So they're making, they're doing, they're, they're, they're iterating concepts and they're, you know, they're doing, I don't know what we used to call it, building prototypes, using personas. I said, yeah, that's nice. Nice that they're, they're the software people are doing that now too. Um, Jane went further into it because like, like, as I said, I, I made the distinction between for me, digital and physical projects or products. And you've went further into like that. You tested those hilarious 2000 websites um so that was also my thing because i had the feeling of course as a market researcher i always took digital influence into account you know like because we all live in a digital world but i have to admit in my market research world i never tested any digital product so that was kind of where my finger raised and then jane said like i'm like wow okay that's an experience i never had as a market researcher as a ux researcher yes <laughs> okay so basically it's one of those words where you have this distinction between i'm gonna put it here you have design thinking service design 
customer experience, some see this as like, I would say almost silos and some say it's all the same, like the goal is the same. So again, I think, I don't think there will ever be a consensus on what it's going to be because it's going to be different for different people based on their experiences. But the word research itself is, um, I, I used, because obviously part of what I do, I also do like this part when it comes to projects. So, and, and I enjoy it. I must say, I mean, I think the, the best, what I enjoy the most is actually this part because you learn so much, actually, you gather so much that you can share again mm-hmm. over time, not just once, because it's like, I remind you mm-hmm. that, <laughs> you know, we found this like, but what I was saying here is using the word research, qualitative research, ethnographic research, UX research, market research, and it becomes like a bit difficult. And I'm going to quote this as you you were talking, actually. Um, Joe Pine, who came also on my podcast, I think in season two or one, he mentions that there are no markets, there are customers. There are no markets, there are no customers, there are people. Yeah, there are humans. Yes, because what is a customer? What is a user? Yes. Mm-hmm. What is a user? Yeah. I know, I mean, the term user really, that's what people call drug addicts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and coming back to that point, I really don't understand why these strange silos, borders are built. Because I, yeah, I feel we all have the same goal and we could rather profit from each other because... A lot of things I'm seeing and user research right now, I'm thinking, well, we've been there 20 years ago. Just ask us. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You're not the first researchers on the world. But there is like an industry that's been doing that for, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years. Just talk to us. We might be helpful. Exactly. Yeah. So anyone can reach out to you, I guess. And and that's the thing, mm-hmm. like, to be honest, also, when I met you, I, I was like, You've been doing that for like, I'm not going to say centuries, but let's combine this. <laughs> so, it feels like centuries right? sometimes. <laughs> like everyone in the room, right? And <laughs> it's like this trendy thing right now. Um, yes. Okay, maybe maybe I can tell you a story. And I yeah, yeah. really love that story. Because I think it must have been, oh gosh, I think five years ago or something, I went to... Uh, user research it might have even been just design but meet up in berlin uh and, and they had an interesting topic i went there just uh, went into freelance ship didn't know anyone sat down guy sitting next to me we chatted he was a designer and then he asked oh what are you i'm like oh i'm a researcher like okay what else do you do oh, yeah yeah well i'm a researcher and you know and i told him like well i worked for um research international mtns kantar you know like naming all these companies he's never heard of any of them and he like so what do these companies do i'm like research and he like there are companies out there that just do research and i'm like yes and i'm just a researcher and he was just like wow i didn't know and i found that really eye opening because i was dipping my toes into a scene where there were designers that did some research, but the idea of, what well, you just do research? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's great. I love it. That was new. I still like to tell that story. Well, that was like five mm. years ago. And, and yes. that, it was not that trendy just yet. It was... It started. Getting it there. Started. It was getting yes. there. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. But I think to be fair, um, that there are a lot of people working in let's just call it market research that you know so that 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 drawer that we might call market research 
who have managed to exist in a parallel world to the UX and the innovation yes. world that Nina and I have dabbled in because I think we saw the proximity to what we were doing and we were interested to see what was happening on the other side of the fence you know and then it took for the more classical back maybe, not maybe today they're, they're they're catching up I think every every research agency or company that has a qualitative department at least is working with more agile methods today there is a discussion starting rather late in the market research community about um, agility, about diversity, about equality. But I think that still a lot of researchers kind of, that it is like two tracks, you know, two 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 railway tracks yes. sort of going going yes. uh, you know and not really meeting. In and Nina and I met, yeah. yeah, for some reason maybe uh I mean I was fascinated by the the idea and I, I do admit that when I heard that software developers were doing research, I was like, oh, fuck, we've got to get shy. Oh, shit, you've got to stop them doing that. They can't do that. They don't know how to do it. Stop it. Stop it. They're going to break everything. You know, I really well, I had that arrogance as a researcher until I dived, so I dove more into it, the whole, like, startup community and lean startup and design thinking and what people like SAP were doing and, and then realized, well, actually, yeah, some of them can do it really, really well and started to pick you know, there are mm -hmm. things like, uh, for example, for startups, the, the book I always uh, recommend them to read is um, uh, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, who comes from that side, that that world, and has just nailed it in terms of what they should be doing. A lot of interesting topics here, Jane, because I feel there is a lot of great research going on. I'm, well, I'm absolutely on the same track. There are two tracks running and probably My story five years ago, a designer who said, I'm doing research, meeting a market researcher, a market researcher would have said, would have said what? You're doing research, doesn't exist. I think it would have worked the other way around. Uh, another in interesting thing I think you just talked about was the um, research democratization. So what we really see right now is that it's going away from this specialist skill, people just being research, it being a specific department also within startups moving more into the direction of like hey let's all do more research aka conversations with humans who might use not use our product so i think there are a lot of things going on there right now it's interesting though that you said there are two parallel words i'm not pinpointing here or anything but are the researchers in their own bubble or are yes they, is it okay yes why Maybe their bubble is not transparent enough that they can actually see what's happening. I think that there may be like accidental bubbles, mm. not, you know, not. And I think that there is, at least for some of the big organizations, the larger research organizations, not so much for smaller like boutique agencies, but more and more the larger organizations, some of the companies, maybe Nina, you could say more about this because you've worked with some of these companies uh, i don't know if it's still true that the the market and in, and for germany i can only say this for germany the market research business is very traditional quite conservative it's big money and the qualitative part we nina and i are qualitative researchers and you have to imagine that qualitative research is only a tiny little part of market what we would call market research Mm -hmm. So the the and, and qualitative researchers also in the market research world treated with a bit of 
condescending so you know you just we are the crazy ones yeah we're the ones that we just talk we don't we, yes. we just talk to people we don't it's not mm-hmm. based you know and for a long long time and this is also something that is thank god starting to change uh the two worlds of quant and qual were kind of not talking to each other so you would have some people mm-hmm. were doing only quant research some people were doing only qualitative research you never really worked together there was a kind of feeling if you do qual you can't do quant if you do quant you can't do qual and so again that is also something where the the, the silos in my opinion they should be broken down because we all know as researchers everybody who's studied it and everybody who knows the you know like Nina said we are we are science-based what we do that you can the best results are when you use different methods to look at the same yeah. problem yeah but I think that 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 because the industry itself is very traditional, and I personally, as a freelancer or somebody who has usually mainly worked in small agencies in like boutique agencies, and never only just very short period in the market research department of a larger organization, I never felt part of this industry. You know, there's a there's a there are bodies. There's the Azomar body that governs marketing and social research worldwide but when you go to like I don't know maybe that that has probably all changed I'm probably talking a lot of rubbish and it's a lot of stereotypes but it's my 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 perception a lot of people in suits uh, very expensive conferences uh, where people talk down to you from a stage and have lots of powerpoints and I always felt that that's not my world and that could, mm-hmm. and maybe I could you know if that if that if that is market research yeah yeah, then I can totally understand why that bubble exists and there's very little communication with the UX world. Yeah, and I would like to add to it, I think there's a lot of prejudices and I realized that I'm working with that because, I mean, just as a background, I did lead the UX research department for um, one of the largest e-commerce platforms in Germany and I did build a UX research department from scratch for a startup. I never mentioned that I'm a market research in that area because they don't like market researchers because they have the feeling market researchers, they only do quantitative research. They're number crunchers. They're slow and they can't do this agile, fast, inside digging that is needed. When I'm talking to companies who want market research, I don't mention that I also do UX research because, so you know, so it's kind, kind of, of like, like you know, where I'm all right. I know. Sorry, please don't tell. So that's the end of my freelanceship. No, <laughs> but it's interesting uh, because like uh, when I talk to the companies who want uh, market researchers, they say like, okay, UX researchers, ah, you know, they, they, they just test whether the button is supposed to be green, red or yellow. They can't do real research. So I'm like, depending on where I am, I use different terms on what I'm doing, but I'm doing the same. Is it helping not putting you in a box or is it helping you build the team you want to build or you get the job you want to get or the project you want to get? I feel when I'm working on these jobs or with these teams, I don't need to dive down the rabbit hole of these discussions. I go on stage, I talk on conferences about that topic because I think that's for me where it belongs. But I, you know, if I do a project with a client, I don't need to be this, okay, let's talk about UX versus market, blah, blah, blah. I, how to say, I deliver what you need and I don't mind which label you put on it. It's funny um, that you said that because I realize I also live a double life. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. 
as I do when I work for my research clients. They book me because I'm a qualitative researcher. I do ethnographic research. I'm just this week I've been doing ethnographic research, dashing around Berlin, talking to teenagers about fashion and how TikTok influences what they, you know, what sneakers they buy. It's such great fun. But I also work on more like innovation projects, design thinking projects, design sprints. But I do that in a different bubble. I just realized that when Nina was talking, yeah. Yeah. they're not the same people. I coach startups. I bring a lot of my research competence into the startup world. And for people who are just like starting out, I do like pro bono workshops for female founders, that kind of thing, where I try to bring what I learned on projects with massive budgets for I mean to be honest it still is market research still is a lot of FMCG you know big budget I try to bring that into that world but they don't talk to each other the two worlds you know to and I do this because it's more fun to be honest it's much more fun to work like design thinking in schools I do that it's a it's a charity I work with where we use all, so I try to use the stuff that I do to earn money. <laughs> I, I try to, you know, to use that in other contexts to experiment and to see how far I can go and, and to bring some of that into another, you know, into a more, a different kind of a culture. But at the same time, it's really strange that we're both work, we're both kind of, yeah, living these double lives. So I have to admit, I don't mind. I mean, coming back to your questions, like, pff, sounds like I gave up. No, it's like, I, I don't mind how you call what I'm doing, you know? Yes. Yeah. I know what I'm doing, so exactly. And you, you maybe in the three goal. years, there is a new term coming out where I think, like, oh yeah, actually, now as you say, hmm, I'm doing that as well. So we used to call it insights for a while. I don't know what happened mm -hmm. to that. I don't know. I didn't realize that it was really a big topic actually in that space. I but that's interesting. Like we went into it, but the only thing that I don't really get is you were saying that researchers tend to be, especially in big companies that might not be as big out there. Like like you said, Nina, like this guy who asked you, like, what do you do? Like, are there research comp like companies that do research? You know, I mean, one of the key, if you want, qualities of a researcher is just to be curious. So how is this bubble not transparent? That's something like, I'm curious now I'm, I, I just, to explore, like, why. Everything is digital. And you could imagine that if these market research people there, the market research companies and the UX people, that they must meet, you know, yeah. because they're all on LinkedIn and they're all good. But the really strange thing is that they, they don't. And I don't think it's any kind of, I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think it's like a no. deliberate kind of, you know, we don't talk to them. And it's really interesting. It just doesn't happen. So you can see how even in the, maybe even more in the digitalized world where it's easier to stay in your bubble. I don't think it's anybody is driving it. I think it's a kind of a dynamic uh, that, that has happened and it has to be, if we wanted to change it, then we would have to be very active to change it. But I don't know. Good question. Why don't we do it? Because if we say one of our main thing is curiosity and there seems to be something really interesting out there, why doesn't that happen? Good question. Can't tell. We people too. Market researchers are also people. So where we know that there's curiosity, but at the same time, there is um, fear of change, fear of the new. Yeah. It's always, you know, I think the market research industry did does is trying to reinvent itself but it's doing that in its bubble with its clients mm, yes. yes so just in a nutshell how did you get out of the bubble somehow <laughs> yeah well, uh, for me it was the design thinking I think about okay. I don't know if it was 10 years ago or I don't know whenever I was working in a, a market research agency in Mannheim or was it later than that 
No, I think I was already self-employed. When you're, I think, I think this is something that maybe Nina, you might agree with as well. When you're self-employed, you have to get out of your bubble. Yes, you have to. I mean, I was living in this little town in the middle of nowhere, and working on projects, and all the time thinking, "Oh my goodness, I feel so isolated." So I would just like go to meetups, and I would go to meetups on things that I'd never heard of, like DevOps, just to find mm. out what it is. And this is how I discovered like lean startup and design thinking. And the whole innovation thing that was like happening, and then I realized that there was a lot of a lot of that in there that I was already doing. Not not all of it, but we were already doing parts of the innovation process. And then I got interested in the other parts, you know, to join the dots. But I also have one of those brains that is just oh, there's a squirrel. Well, and actually, my stepping out of the bubble, design thinking, similar. It was just well. Back then, it was a trend, blah, blah, everyone did it. So I was onto that track as well. The interesting thing is rather, I think, how I got into UX research. Because remember that conversation with the designer where he's like, oh, you're just doing your research? And I don't know, half a year later, or maybe a year later, that person recommended me to an agency because that agency was looking for an interim manager for their UX research team. So person I never heard about reached out to me. They, oh, UX research team. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong person. I can't do UX research. How can I lead a team of UX? And that person was a researcher himself. And he said like, oh, don't worry. You know, there is no fence between you. You can do that. I'm like, I, I had to look up what is UX research before going into that phone call, you know. And I ended up leading that team, I think, for eight months you know, entering by not even knowing what the term means. So um, that's how my fence got torn down. It goes back to, to lots of industries, actually, where you have this kind of also generalist approach, but you have lots of things that happen, but just packaged in different ways over time. It's also, I think some of us teach here, but, you know, you have new master degrees, so you need to have new fancy titles to attract new students or new job titles to attract more mm -hmm. people to apply. But This job description is like a thousand things that actually sometimes don't match or it's impossible to be great at everything. So it's it reminds me of that. So, yeah, I think we, we dived into that as well. I was taking some notes as you were talking. So I think let's have a wrap up of this section somehow. And people who are like listening to this conversation who are in the space, like the innovation space, let's say in general, but also research, like particularly, or someone who wants to, to switch around because you have researchers who come from different backgrounds and like jump in because they understand specific industries, maybe even more in depth or not. I don't know. How can someone get into the space? Does it require a specific background what are the skills i just remembered how when uh, my my very first job interview when i came to germany i was working in london and i hated it i wanted to become um, a management consultant okay. <laughs> i was so young and i said More i'm going to be a management consultant <laughs> yes yeah, uh, and I, i realized pretty quickly that that wasn't my career path so i just came i came to germany and i applied for some jobs and i i i, I um i applied for procter and gamble because i studied marketing and i kind of heard of them so um, I went to Procter Gamble for a job interview and they said, we've got two jobs that we'd be interested in you know, putting you forward for. One is market research and one is media. I had no idea what media did. I had no idea what a media department did. But I said then and there, I said, no way I'm going into market research. I'm not going to do that. So I did media. I think I often have these discussions. I remember uh, with a lot of qualitative researchers, whether what we do is something that is 
born or taught. I think there is a certain kind of capacity for, like I said before, reading people. I don't want, there's that awful word, empathy that gets thrown around. I don't yeah. like it so much. But I think we have an, in, you, if you, well, let's just talk about qualitative research right now, because neither mm. of us are our statistics and we're not, we, we can um, work with quant people, but we don't, it's not our predominantly what we do. I think there, the, this curiosity that, that you talked about earlier, just a kind of a, a sort of the feeling that it's not as clear cut as you might think it is. People don't act the way they do in because of a specific they're not trying to you know people always act the way they do for some kind of inner motivation it wouldn't be interesting to know what that is I think this is something that you have to have this kind of acceptance of the fact that because you know there are there are people who who, who think in totally different ways I think you really need to have that I mean you, I work with a lot of juniors in this space and you kind of notice quite early on if you're working with somebody whether they have that and I know this is not an answer to the question, <laughs> but I think I can't really say go and study this, go and study that, because in my I, I've met so many great researchers from so many different backgrounds. I think it is mm -hmm. very useful to have, um, and this is something that I think is a debate in the UX field. I think I maybe have caught, have heard of this, um, to have a base in social sciences so that you understand some models. It could be psychology, it could be sociology. In some cultures, they have a lot of anthropologists in France. A lot of qualitative mm -hmm. researchers come from social anthropology. So you have a basic understanding of some cognitive models. How, how does the, how do people function individually and in groups to have that grounding? Doesn't mean you have to have a master's in psychology, but it's very good to have come from, from that area. I think also it's very useful when you're working with, whether you're working with internal clients or with external clients to have some business acumen. I think it's very important to be able to talk to marketing people, product development people, to have an understanding of their roles. And you can you can learn that on the job, but to have a, I mean, that was something that really helped me at the beginning of my career was that I'd spent several years at P&G and I could speak marketing. What do you think, Nina? Yeah, absolutely on the same page with anything related to sociology, psychology, and so on. I feel here we are again at two very different tracks of how market researcher versus UX researcher enter the area market research classically is well you do have some kind of study background um, and you enter as a junior and you, there's a lot of learning on the job um, shadowing seniors and, and um, really learning it there whereas with the UX research I do see an increase of, of, of boot camps of um, all these kind of things so yeah. UX researcher come from there or um not everywhere, but with a lot of universities, um, when you study design, you do have a little bit of a research track in there. So that's also a possibility. But that's only, how to say, the springboard, how to get in. And afterwards, I can just say, um, just do it. It's learning on the job because it's so much, it's not about theory, but it's so much about, yeah, reading the room, understanding what's going on there. And it's very difficult to have like a 10-point checklist of saying, oh, I have to be able to do that. But yeah. Go out there, do it. This is why actually I was asking you this question and in a way where not just someone entering, but I'm seeing lots of people primarily on LinkedIn and, you know, Reddit or some places, people just want to switch their career path, like go into UX, go into something else. So I was asking, like some backgrounds can be very useful also. It's not just like, you know, you have to start from like scratch or you can shift also. So that was 
Thank you for that answer. Yeah, sorry, the one thing I, I think that we must, I think that I personally think is very, very important in our job mm-hmm. is language mm-hmm. because we spend most of our time talking to people or reading things they've written or listening to their posts. You know, we do, we use uh, all, the, all the media um, today. It's not just interviews or focus, yeah. focus, focus groups. Are we allowed to say that word? Focus groups? Um, I think having a feeling for language is very, very important. I would always be very careful. Although I speak German, I feel okay to work in Austria, but I would, depending on the topic, I would get a local moderator, depending on, even yeah. though I come from Me the too. UK. For Austria, Switzerland, sorry, I would not moderate. And even some topics, yeah. I would be careful of even working in the UK if it's something where they're talking a lot about what's happening right now in terms of I don't know, ce- celebrities and stuff, because I just don't know. I don't live there anymore. Yeah, so feeling for language is very it's very useful i'm gonna just switch this a bit around and ask you you mentioned why are you not allowed to say focus groups <laughs> um i didn't I, know this you, until that's, recently <laughs> that, that's i personally mm-hmm. uh, i'm not a fan of focus groups but that's personally what i'd like to hear <laughs> why you're not allowed i don't really know actually i just got told that by somebody who was not a researcher <laughs> <laughs> okay and apparently something has happened uh, during while I've yes. been busy. Well, I've been busy yes. running focus groups all across the yeah. country, and Lena and I have literally spent <laughs> thousands of hours of our lives wasting on focus groups. groups. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they're out, and I don't know what happened. And the thing is, and there maybe we're coming back to the loop of research democratization because I think a thing as a seasoned researcher you're all also able to do or must be able to do is realize okay for which topic do I choose which method and I think focus groups were burned being used too much for the wrong topic and then it's just frustrating if you have a topic which needs a one-on-one interview or which needs ethnography and you think oh i think it's cheaper if i just put 10 people in one room and chat with them for two hours you can't do anything with the results so i think that happened you know too many people thought like oh that looks good seems cheaper more time efficient let's do a focus group on topics which just doesn't belong but that's just an hypothesis i think i throw in uh, something here to, to support you in your question is it also because it's been used and overused maybe as a buzzword by people who don't really understand how to conduct the research and this is how it got burned somehow. It's really, I mean, moderating a focus, we don't call them focus groups actually, we call them group discussions. Mm -hmm. Moderating group discussions is, when I started working in this, it was the, what would you say, the king's, the queen's discipline for qualitative researchers. You don't get to do that for quite a long time and it is not easy. And you have to practice, practice, practice. And I, if you, yes. I mean, I think back on my first moderator, you know, my jobs doing focused group discussions, it is so embarrassing to think about mm-hmm. what I did to those people. But you just have to, and it's very difficult to teach. So you yes. have to spend hours and hours and hours. And you, I was very lucky that I spent a long, a lot of time um, in the middle of my career working on projects together, sometimes with French moderators and sometimes with people from the UK who have very different styles and very yes. different approaches. So it's not like there's not one way to do it. So I'm getting feedback from your clients who would come up, you know, come to me at the end of the session and say, yeah, that worked really well, but we've had really good experience doing this. Or would you try that? 
Um, mm. That's how you learn it. And and also, I think maybe what burnt focus groups is there's um there is a there, there's a kind of a trend for a while of using focus groups like some kind of quant. It yeah, you going, going around the room and asking people on a scale of one to ten, what do you think about this, and then writing it on the flip chart. Hello, that's not qualitative research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if you're not a fan of focus groups, um, you should watch one of us moderate one. <laughs> okay, Because we still Because, do it and we still get paid for it. Yes, okay. and there is such a big difference out there in the quality of uh, workshop, moder- uh, workshop, sorry, focus group moderation. There is. But that is a good slip of the tongue, Nina, because you can, I mean, you can run a, what people, you know, focus group like a workshop, you could run a workshop like a focus group. I think, yes. you know, what I yeah. think of a focus group, group discussion is, I have the luxury of having these people, maybe not even in a room, but on my screen for two hours. And I can just like, you know, work with that. Mm-hmm. How do you recruit your participants then? <laughs> This is uh, not a nice topic. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's uh, the topic that hurts most. Let's put it that way. There is an entire industry that helps you recruit the people we talk to. So there are data banks where people are, where people do sign up and like, hey, I'm basically interested in. So that's like the standard. What's been grow, and then I have to say, throw in my criteria. You know, yeah. from um, what's growing in the last years is this that more progressive agencies try to build their own pool of different kind of users because what happens quite often in these data banks you have people in there who just do it to get some money and they might even fake oh yes i own this and that car but they just don't um so what's been going on is that uh trying to recruit via an own pool you know you say like you, you need very specific influencers or whatsoever trying to recruit either um insta or facebook saying like hey would you like to chat with us about your <laughs> whatsoever depending on the topic that works quite well because the thing is when people hear market research or research even your ex research and participating like oh my gosh that sounds so boring but the thing is we most of the time want to talk to people who are interested in that topic. And those people love talking to us because they love the topic. So you just need to find those people and putting them on the right topic, kind of. There is a lot of online recruiting going on right now with all these startups who do recruitment for uh, for, for UX research. That's, I think, the spectrum of what we're working with. It's a tough one. It's a tough one because also yes. sometimes you you call people maybe not at the right time, but then they give you a few minutes and then you're like, okay, I wish I had longer, but then they have other things going on. Like, why do you have to, they have to do that? That's if like they're the right people, right? And if they're, so, so it's tough. Like, do you have to do so much to get so little? Mm-hmm. I think it, it really, I mean, when we, I'm going back again to the early zero 2000 whatever when we were working this small agency uh recruiting was something that we more or less did ourselves we would go out on the streets and put notes in people on people's cars saying we'd like to talk to you because we like your you know your car is interesting we did a lot of research for for automotive or we would ask around our friends or we would put ads in the newspaper wow yeah or we put 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 signs up in the in the university if we were looking for that age group and we would like recruit people on on the street it was very common to be stopped on the street and asked and then the whole industry changed and uh, i still work 
with professional recruiting agencies, just selected ones, very few. But what I noticed there is that they always tell me that they're getting such a lot of pressure to put the prices down. So the quality cannot be good, regardless of the method. If people are not prepared to put money behind recruiting, to have enough respect to say the person is going to spend, I don't know how many hours on the telephone to convince somebody to take part in a research project, and that person should get an incentive for doing that. If we're not prepared to put money behind that, then we will get rubbish. Yeah. It's garbage in, garbage out. And the industry has to be prepared to accept that. And I think well, you as can well, ask Chad GPT. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, let's talk about silicon participants. Ouch. Yes, go on. Let's talk about them. Let's not talk about them. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, it's interesting what you're saying. I mean, I remember a few years ago, so I was in Milan and I stood on the street like in Duomo I went to Duomo where you had like tourists and locals like a mixture and people would think that I'm a scam or that I'm I'm trying to ask for money they just don't give you time so what you could do you're saying 20 years ago even putting like a paper on someone's car or I I can't imagine this happening today with all the scams going on I mean I I get sms sometimes and it's like get your iphone for one dollar like things like that you know it's come everywhere. How, but how I have done, is it happening now? I don't how know because doing? I pay other people to do it, I must admit. But I have done it myself. Yeah. Like I've I've been, I remember uh, it was before, oh, I think before COVID is also a part topic. Before oh, COVID, yeah. um, when we did a lot more research in test studios and not online. For some projects, for specific clients who really want a specific target. And it's not just we're like testing the late, the newest ad for the for a detergent or something, you know? But where I want people, specifically, I do a lot of work in the fashion field. And I, I have been in cities, like I remember being in Munich, it was before COVID, and uh, walking up to people on Marienplatz in Munich and saying, are you, those are really cool boots. What are you doing this evening? That's a pickup line, Jane. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, but I was like I never 20 years that. older than them, you know? <laughs> Why not? Okay, I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard yeah it's really hard yes you, you've got guts uh jane like in, in that sense it's like just pointing at guts. so question here you both said you're overthink and welcome to over to the overthinkers club right so what's your relationship with your gut feeling very strong relation otherwise i wouldn't be able to be such a good researcher and there we are again with reading the room because reading the room for me is mix of feeling oh, something's going on here, you know, like, of course, there might be physical signs of people shrugging or, you know, smiling or blood, but something like, oh, something is going on here. And then working with that. And I need the gut feeling to realize quickly, hey, you know, there might be a little treasure chest there. I have to follow that direction or, you know, because I realized something changed in the room when talking about these kind of things. So very strong connection. I mean, yes, in, in the professional context, definitely. And it was something that really fascinated me when I first started working in the industry because I was working for this guy, a social psychologist, had his own agency, and I would go along to presentations and I'd seen the, the groups, I'd taken notes and I'd been tagged along to the interviews and done the transcribing of the interviews and he would stand up in front of the clients and say and I was like where did that come from did he make that up and then like 20 years later I'm doing it you know so it's it's this and it's so difficult because I, I feel so sorry for people starting out in the industry because I don't want to tell them that 
you know, you just know. But in, in the rest of my life, I'm really good at taking really big decisions. I mean, at taking them, it doesn't mean that they're good decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm really bad at the little ones. <laughs> Should I go to the gym first or have breakfast or shower? I take and then two hours later, I'm like, what did I want to do? But I do. I've all, I, I have spent my life making big decisions, big life. Yeah. And it's always been from a sense of that's the only option I have is to move forwards. Just been thinking about it. And I love it how you phrase that, Jane. I remember a thing that my senior back then in my early, I don't know, it was my first or second year told me because the thing was like, you know, group discussions. Um, and my question was, how do I know when I stop asking? So you have the topic and ask like, you know, like, I don't know, how do you like it or blah, blah, whatsoever. And I was always like, because you have a specific time frame of two hours with these people, you have a lot of topics to cover. So how in the world do I as a moderator know, okay, there's nothing more to come. Let's move on to the next topic or that's it. And the answer of my senior was when the chart is full. And what? And it's true. And honestly, and I, I can't phrase it better because also I'm now I'm sitting in these groups and I realize, yeah, my chart is written, you know, while I have these conversations and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing the chart and I realize, okay, I have all my pros and cons, you know, um, okay, let's move on. And that's also, well, you can call it gut feeling. However, well, I'm a psychologist and I actually did a lot of work on um, intuitive decision-making And psychology is quite clear on that gut feeling is not emotional, but it's based on implicit experiences you made through your life and you can just access it it quicker than your brains. So gut feeling is not like this, oh, I'm feeling like, but it's just you can access this very quickly. So um, yeah, when the chart is full, you go to the next topic and that's gut feeling based on experience. On that note, though, I'll tell you when I started using my gut feeling, I think dictation in French, right? The French French grammar is more complicated than like the English one or so on. So uh, I was really good actually at dictation, but I would just trust my gut like, yeah, this word should have an S at the end or not. But don't ask me about the grammar. I had no idea. <laughs> Let's move a, a bit to the next topic. Again, I'm just taking notes and taking notes based on what, what you're saying. But maybe in a nutshell, let's be quick on that one. I know it's important. But for startups and large organizations, not everybody is aware of research, why it's important. And it's not a like you do it once and then you move on for the next hundred years, right? So yeah, why is it important for the listeners who have companies, startups, SMEs, even even freelancing, right? Very quick answer. Um, I think no company, no matter in which field, can exist without humans purchasing their product. So how can you have the idea of building a product without talking to those humans? That will be my very short answer on that one. Yeah, you can't afford not to do research. And I think also we're seeing a, a shift in the way business works has changed, you know, deregulation, globalization, you used to be that companies could work like top down, you know, you you start a company because you're very good at something, you know, you can build something, you're very good at it. And then you have the idea, everybody needs this. So I'm building it for everybody who needs it because I need it. And maybe that worked for a while, you know, that did work for a while when we had people making, um, you know, and, and but it doesn't work anymore, because your customers have so much choice 
You know, they don't have to buy your product. If you're building, I always say to the startups, the number one reason why startups fail is lack of product market fit. Yes. And absolutely. it has been proven several times. So, I mean, that's the answer because you can't afford not to do it. And I always say to them, make sure you're not making uh, a solution for a non-existent problem. So I think you need to have research to understand the everyday reality of the people that are supposed to be buying your product or service so that it can dock onto their needs. So you can't afford not to. And everything and is faster. So what are you going to do? Are you going to build a product, throw it on the market and wait for it to fail and then start again? Yeah. And raise more money if you I'd can. rather if fail in a focus yeah. group. I said it again. I'd rather, no, I'd rather fail <laughs> yeah. in a focus group huh? at the concept stage than yeah. build something yeah. that nobody wants. But that's an interesting one here because you have yeah, like so many times, I think it's a post I made on LinkedIn and you, you commented also on that. It's um, where you so many times I actually start ask startups and founders is like, have you spoken to potential customers? Did you go out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you try to dig deeper, it's like they ask the neighbor or the other startup next to them or someone, and then it ended here. Whereas they move so fast as a startup, like they iterate all the time, right? Things change mm-hmm. all the time. And and the research is not up, like following. Yeah. In that it's very and, hard and for them. So it is. I, think, I mean, I think we have to be a little bit not so strict, you know, obviously they should be doing it, but we have to accept the fact that it's difficult for them. This is why I've been working... For the last sort of, I think maybe eight years in mm-hmm. the town I used to live in, for with the local uh, business and innovation center and the university and the the research institutes there, there are a lot of startups coming out of the academic field and technical because we have a, a Fraunhofer Institute for software development and we have a technical university, um, so a lot of ideas are coming out of that that, mm-hmm. and it is very difficult for these people to they've never learned it. Yeah, it's not that they don't. I think the problem is not so much that they don't understand the need. It's more that they don't have the skills. And it's our mm. jobs to help them do that, to lower the threshold and to make it accessible for them and to like hold their hands. I do like things like in workshops, I get them to practice interviewing each other, just really basic stuff. Mm. Give them a fictive, a fictional startup and say, right, I'm, I'm the CEO and I want you to interview each other and come back with some, you know, the, the, the new disruption, the big thing. Uh, and make it fun. And they have yeah, like, yeah. so many other things to do also. So it's like, what are the priorities? Obviously, they need to get out there. And there's pressure because there's limited time. There is limited money. Yeah. So. And also, just to add to that, I've often seen that uh, business analytics was mistaken as research. So I'm going into um, race, uh, into uh, startups and like, oh, we know everything about the user. I'm like, oh, cool. Who have you talked to? Oh, no. And then, you know. I've seen amazing dashboards where I felt like, well, you know, we know everything these people are doing on the website, app, blah, blah, whatsoever. But I was told, well, with that, we can only see what your users are doing with what you offer them. Yeah. But we don't know what they might do differently, what they wish, what they need whatsoever so that there is always a big mistake like um, data analytics being researched it's not I think also the the, the because I, I think also like you Maria I teach um, problem-based learning at technical university I can't, I'm not allowed to call it design thinking at the university and teach that to engineers and I realized then how the education system is not really preparing them for that kind of human-centered open, mm-hmm. Uh, taking risks they're not always being a right answer you know the ambivalence that you need the ambiguity 
at the beginning of the fuzzy front end of innovation where you don't know the answer and you need to find it out. So when I ask my students to do like research, so they do Google Forms and they, they try and dig out research, you know, data that is already available off the university computer. And I like, you know, no, you really have to go and talk to people. And it's so hard. Um, it is, yeah. But to, to crack that kind of mindset. And I think that we, uh, as a, it's not just a problem. I think as a society, I mean, I, I also work, I'm very interested in design and research in the uh, public sector. Mm-hmm. You know? So we need as a society, and I think there is a movement, it's starting very slowly. Maybe this is just my bubble, but I hope it's not. Uh, and kind of an acceptance for the fact that it's okay uh, to not have the answer to everything, even if you are the CEO, or mm-hmm. even if you are the minister for, and that you, nobody expects you to say, this is how it works but that it's actually you're a better leader if you say, let's research it, let's look at it, let's talk to the people. On that note, actually, just to make you feel better, Jane, even design students who have like a background in design, like completely, what I witnessed is I have to like push them a hundred times to get out on the street and interview people. And I was surprised by this one. I mean... You know, so it's not just like if design students find it hard, then the others will as well. <laughs> so that's at least my, my experience, right? So interesting points here. I just want to have some room for stories also. So let, let's start with this one before we jump into a story, because this could lead us to some stories, funny stories, sad stories, amazing stories. Up to you. I'll leave it to you. But how do you approach a project? And then maybe you can share some. I know you have great stories, but I'll let you think you decide what you want to share. One of the first questions I ask people is before we get into the nitty gritty of what they want me to do and how they think it should be done is, is to always like take several steps back and to always like come back and say, okay, what is the business goal behind all of this? Let's just not talk about research. What do you really need to, what is the pain in the company or in the department? Well, what will you do with the outcomes? Because uh, this is something I've learned the hard way because you you spend a lot of time and energy on a research project. You come back and you present the results and they say, no, we can't do that. And the other one is, what have you done already? What have you already tried? So mm-hmm. that would be my fir- the first thing I would do. Take a big step back and look at the whole thing from the higher level. Good one. Not 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 more to add. Yeah, okay. it's kind of, kind of contextualizing where everything's coming from. That would be about it, yeah. I'm not going to go into details like, are you working with their own teams and things like that? Because then we go too deep, I think, and mm-hmm. we can leave this mm-hmm. for another time. But do you have some stories you can share of like what happened? Uh, some maybe <laughs> using different methods, like things that happened that took you by surprise. Where well, you we were... get surprised um, every day. <laughs> yes. Actually, I always kind of have this tiny little never started it project in my head, stand up comedy with um, qualitative researchers, because I think we all have the craziest stories. I mean, because again, it's it's being out there with humans. Um, I'm just thinking how, how, how I would prioritize. Emotionally, I find it, it's someone, sometimes it really gets me when I realize about which topics people start crying in the interviews. But I realized the most emotional topic you can research, it's cat food. Every focus group, I cat food. That surprised me so much because you always have people in there who love their cats, who wanted to have, and most of, for most of them, it's not their first cat. So they start talking about 
you know, a cat, that disease. I think in all my cat food groups, I have people start crying. They get up, they hug each other, they show pictures of the cat. That really was like, wow, I didn't expect very emotional topic. Can, can I just interrupt you here and ask you what I feel you're getting emotion about. Do you have a cat? No, I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but what I'm getting kind woo. of... <laughs> no, it's just, just to put it in perspective, was this a cat foods project, like specifically? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. It was it was a communication for cat food, you know? So what do we put on the cat food? Is it with chicken, with turkey, with blah, blah, blah? So it wasn't emotionally going in depth. I wasn't visiting the people at home. Group discussions, six people in the room. We make a classic introduction round where just, hey, you know, and people start crying. And I'm just like, oh, okay, good. And that happens every time I have cat food groups. I don't know, maybe it's about me, but um, I'm, that really surprises me. Um, baby food is baby the same, you know. I've had fights in group discussions, real fights. I had people, I had people harassing me mm-hmm. um, really people badly. Like, the first time I had to throw um, somebody out of a group because uh, they got, they stood up and they started shouting at each other across the table, and it was about cars. Okay. And it was again, it was a test. It was a, it was a really, really pretty boring communication test, which we do quite a lot in market research. Because we work a lot, we used to do work a lot with ad agencies. And she was a BMW driver, and he was a Mercedes driver. Never put them in the same room together. <laughs> and you're in Germany, okay? Yes. So, but maybe also bringing some methods in there. I remember uh, one study I really enjoyed as we were testing for a um, company that produced uh, spirits, alcohol. We were. It was about new flavors and. Um, I think also labels. So what we did to not have the classic setting, we built a pub crawl for them. So we rented um, a cocktail facility. We had a high class cocktail person there. And it was like we, I think we always had three or four people who also didn't know each other walking with us through the stations and, you know, and then also trying stuff, you know, and at the very end, they came to the cocktail bar and... Uh, were allowed to, I think, wish for a cocktail maximum of two ingredients because it was also about like, how would you use it at home, blah, blah, blah. And so it was an awesome, really great idea. People were quite drunk in the end. We had fun. I don't know whether the results were that reliable. It was just, it was really fun um, doing all this stuff. But we get to do some really cool stuff. I, mean, I remember we, we flew, we once flew, I think, 40 German farmers to France to test tractors. And they had such a great time. <laughs> driving these tractors around and then you know coming in and talking about them and uh and a lot of them had never been out of germany in their lives before some of them had never been on an airplane before uh-huh. yeah well talking about france one study i did i really loved it it was about the front design of washing machines um, so really like how do you perceive what it looks like, you know, a high class premium whatsoever. So kind of to have the situation when you're running through the technic market and see the things from, I don't know, 10, 15 meters, where, which one do you, do you go to? So it was clear we can't do that with printouts. So we had, I think, a total of 20 washing machines, you know, from quite cheap to really premium. And we did the research in Germany and in Paris. And I just remember I arrived at the facility in the morning and there was like a traffic jam all over the place. I was like, what's going on here? And then I came around the corner and saw like, oh gosh, that's my truck 
delivering my 20 washing machines and the guys didn't like the idea of bringing them up. I think it was third floor, 21. I, I was just like trying to pretend to have nothing to do with it. I just walked by, went to the next cafe, had my croissant, thought like, oh, they're going to deal with that. Um, Sometimes that one, that we, set up, we make some really incredible setups. Just last week I was in um, in, in Hamburg and what we I said we've done quite a lot of autom automotive research. And one thing that the automotive companies do is what's called a car clinic. It's a special kind of research. So you have a, a big shed and you have like lots of different cars in the same category. And then you have the prototype. So it's all really, really secret. And people have to go through like um, security um, and no pictures and no, there wasn't even a clock on the wall. So I was like, how am I going to know? I'm going to time my interview because I wasn't allowed to take my watch. I wasn't allowed to take my phone. But gut feeling, Nina knows this as well. You know exactly when two hours are up. You know, yes. <laughs> you just know. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, yeah. And then. No, it's there's so many funny stories about car clinics because cars, not just in Germany, are such an emotional topic. And when people start getting to a prototype or a car or whatever, uh, they start telling you things that you think sometimes you think, oh, God, you know, I really didn't want to know all this. So, yeah. And one yeah, other yeah. Thing, that thing that I think is also really surprising, what I really enjoy about job about the job, but sometimes it's very frustrating, is when you realize I'm just going to say this for all the marketing people out there listening, um, how little a lot of people know ha have are in connection with their targets, with their, with their, with the people that are buying their stuff, how really they just are so confused when they see what I call the day-to-day -day reality of their customers, because I mean, it, yeah, I can, I can understand that because they spend all their time thinking about it and thinking about it and overthinking it, but we don't spend our lives thinking about, you know, what soap detergent am I going to buy tomorrow? So, and I remember we did this project for um, a company that makes uh, these tabs for the dishwashers. Yeah. And we had these, it was a group discussion, but before the group discussion, we had done in-homes. So we'd been to watch people loading the dishwasher, how they do it and everything. And they they introduced this new new tab and it had, I don't know, five or seven stripes and a Powerball And it was the non-plus ultra of dishwashing. You know, there was this phase where they do more and more and more and more. Um, and the client that was watching was the product developer. She was a chemist. And we were like talking about it in the group discussions and the women were going, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I said, well, you know, if this comes on the market, what would, what, what, how would that change the way you use your dishwasher? What would you do? And they're like, no, nothing really. I would just put it in that thing, close it, put it on. And yeah, anything else? You know, what about, would you stop using anything else? You know, because you know, they use salt and the stuff to make it sparkly and like no 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 and the, the woman she actually came out of the, the room where the when you were doing offline the focus groups you have to cut the 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 client behind a, a one-way mirror it's like a, like a police station and you are the other side with the respondents and she actually came into the room which is like war you know she came into the room and she's like and, and she like attacked me and she said they don't understand the product and I was like, Yeah. Um, so we went back, we had a little talk. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure both of you know why the women reacted the way they did. I don't know if it's still up to date. I was discussing this the other day with some other people. But if you don't put the, the salt and the clear stuff, it, the rinsing liquid in the in your dishwasher, lights go on and it makes noises and it complains. So you can make a power, you can make a tab with 20 stripes and 50 power balls. It won't have any difference because the reality of the people using the machines is a different one. And I think that that's just a very 
rather old, but a very good example of how often how little things can make such a big difference and how important it is to not just talk to people, but to actually get out and 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 observe. So this is also something that startups could do. If you're if you're scared of having like a conversation, it depends on your product, of course, but you can go and watch people. I'm a, a project about some kind of software for people to take account of the insurance that the company gives their employees. And the, the, the company, I was working for the insurance company, and they wanted to understand why people were not using the software. And I talked to all these people about the software and how you could use it and everything. And why they, and they said, yeah, yeah, they used it, but they all had behind them in their offices, wall-to-wall files, they printed everything out. And the insurance company couldn't understand because the USP of this platform was that you was paperless. But so, so all you the came offices, after you came after they developed the No, uh, no, from... people were still people were using the platform that was supposed okay. to create paperless office, but mm-hmm. they were still printing everything out. And this is something that you 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 can tell people that, mm-hmm. but you have to see it. You know, you have to understand it. You have to talk to uh, Mrs. Meyer in the office who tells you that her her boss needs to sign it and it needs to be put in the file and the office has to have it in triplicate. And if she doesn't do it, she'll lose her job. Just a quick one here. How are you finding it? Because you, I'm just going to go back to your previous example, as in you would go on the streets and just talk to people and you have your pickup line and whatever, right? <laughs> that need not picked on. Like, can you still go to someone's home today? Like, do they trust? I was in, I would, I've spent this whole week, I've been in four homes this week already. Okay. And at the beginning of the year in April, I did the same. I was going all over Berlin with with clients, with interpreters, with cameramen in people's homes, okay. interviewing them for three hours, four hours on on camera with interpreters. Yeah, and honestly, that is the thing why I'm still a researcher, and you know, it can be stressful, blah blah, whatever. But the thing is, being a researcher forces me to leave my bubble. You know, well, I live in a bubble. I, I can probably enter the apartment of my friends and it might look alike, you know, but we all kind of do the same thing. I may be interested in the same thing. Of course, we are different, but hey, we live in a bubble. But research forces me to leave that bubble. I'm meeting people where I in my private life have, have no overlap, who I would probably never meet, who are fans of bands where I was thought that oh really who purchased these furnitures were think like wow that's you and you know and it's all lovely people and the research forces me to step out of my bubble and step into a different bubble to understand it and and honestly and, and that's why I love research because I think in no other job you see so much great stuff have so amazing conversations and it it, had, it enriches my life I have to say, you know, because I, I go out there and talk to all these humans. And while we were doing it online for a while, it was still quite insightful because you, in some ways, because if you do a focus, a group discussion or interviews with people when they're in their own home, a lot of my clients really liked it, depending on the topic. I had a client, we were talking about streaming, you know, media usage and stuff. And they loved that because you could see the the living room and the, you know, the way people live and the differences or Sometimes when a child runs through the picture and a, or a cat walks across, that kind of thing. But the but actually getting out and like Nina said, visiting people in their homes or meeting them in in a context that is relevant to the research uh, is just so incredibly rich. I mean, um, yeah. we get to go through. I, I've cooked with families. Uh, yesterday, I got 
told by like talking to three 16 year olds about dealing with sneakers and what's a good invest and you know which ones to buy and then yeah it's just we see so many different I think that's also what opens your your mind and I think if you're not that kind of person coming back to where we started earlier uh, if you don't have that kind of openness and curiosity then it's not the right job yeah yeah I mean that requires a lot of patience uh, meeting new people discovering stuff killing any assumption you had yeah yes, but you get very you get very quick at decoding yes. things and as I mentioned I said we did a lot of automotive and one of the very things that we did then exploratory research for automobile automotive companies and we visited so many people at home that I got to the stage where I could tell just by if you give me a photograph of somebody's living room I could tell them what car they own Wow. Okay. Yeah. And the, I think the other thing is what you learn throughout the job and, and don't understand me wrong here. We have to be able to build, gosh, I can't think of the English word right now. Rapport. Vertrauen. Rapport. Trust. Yes. Trust. 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 In a millisecond. In many seconds. And this is not about tricking people, but it's about that my interview partner who lets me, a strange woman, into their very intimate place that they feel comfortable with it that that is a thing you learn through all these years build rapport and trust very very quickly and on the other hand i mean that's the other side of the medal i realize when i do a lot of research visiting a lot of people at home i'm so tired because i feel like my social nerve is sore because like as a good researcher honestly you just listen um, you don't ask a lot of questions, you know, but you just listen. But it's kind of like you are like a 200% alert um, and giving so much social energy in there. So, um, yeah, that's a great thing about the job as well. It's like a goalkeeper somehow because well, you yes, have to see yes. everything. You feel yeah, everything, yeah. you see everything, you hear everything. At the same time, your brain is trying to make a checklist of what you've already understood and what to mm. ask next and what you don't understand and how to fit that into the goals of the research. And, you know, it's not you don't just sit down with them and have a conversation about their lives. You really have a you have an agenda. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes if you're yeah. you have clients sitting next to you and interpreters sitting next to you yes. and um and focusing on on that and it, i came home yesterday after spending uh like three hours three four hours talking to these teenagers and i just i went to bed at nine o'clock yeah did you have to put everything condense everything you had like in if you were you can't do that on the same day oh well you're you're tired obviously <laughs> yes but you can't do you can't give an analysis of what i was yeah. talking to my client about this this morning because she was with me we were at this another topic is about how do you actually synthesize yeah and uh, analyze what you've learned and uh i saw my i could just keep looking over i was in the side eye of my client my two clients were sitting right and left of the interpreter and they were filling notebook after notebook after notebook <laughs> and um and i said to her look can't please don't ask me please don't ask me about that about those interviews, I think four interviews, four different um, uh, in-homes that we did in Berlin and we're going to Dusseldorf and Hamburg and Munich because I can't tell you right now, yeah. you know, it has to go through this process. Yeah, um, I know we're running out of time, so can I ask one more question? Okay. Yes. yes, go ahead. I want to have this last question as a tribute to Adam because that's how we met oh, yes. <laughs> through Adam Lawrence, yes, who was on yes. that talks as well, 24 and 25. I think, yeah. And the question is, because we met in a context of theater for surface design, 
Um, so we were we were kind of wrapping up with the key points um, that you need to have. You know, you need to gain that trust and then have fun. So how do you incorporate theater? Do you do it? Well, I would say I don't incorporate it, but I see my job as impro theater because it's very comparable. You know, you kind of have a goal out there where you know I want to reach that. You do have a stage with one to eight people on there. You have no idea what's going to happen. You get a prompt and you have to react. So I don't use it. I have the feeling what we do is impro theater, but I'd love to use it more. You know, like really saying like, hey, play a scene or whatsoever. But right now, I rather always feel in the midst of her impro theater in my job. I don't know if Jane wants to add anything to this. Yeah, I just want to, what Nina said. I, we always used to say when we were, it seems such a long time ago before COVID, when, we, when the standard situation was a group discussion in a room with the mirror behind you and the, the, cost, the clients behind the mirror and the interpreters in a little room on watching everything on a screen. We always said you play, you have to play, you're, you're doing what Nina said, which is you're acting impro with the participants mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's like you have a setting, you know, you play scenes with people that don't know that they're doing impro with you. Yes. Good point. Um, yeah. And then you're acting for the people behind the mirror because they have an yes. agenda yes. and you are the filter. You know, we are, I, I see my job as being an interpreter. I translate the reality of the customer into something that the, my clients can understand and use to make their business better. So you're like a kind of a conduit. So I use theater methods when I, when I get the opportunity to do workshops, which is more in my other life. I use theater like everybody does in facilitation for like warm-ups and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, coming back, when I was a child, I always wanted to be a musical singer. That was my goal. Oh. I love being on a stage. <laughs> but I use, I, I do impro. For me, impro is a sport. It's what I do to relax. It's what I do to have fun. Uh, you know, when I do it with a group of people, um, yeah. we I, I think for some people like to go and play volleyball or something, and I'm not sporty, and I love language, and I love the spontaneity and the creativity. So for me, if I do like two or three hours of impro with my with the people that I that I love to do it with, it's a way from to unwind. It's a way that my brain gets calm because it's in you're in the flow. You don't have to overthink. Because you don't have time to overthink. Yeah. Thank you so much for this. I know that we focused on the part of like doing research. Why is it important? But we did not focus on how to put everything together and how to use because it's 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 a lot of things to to cover. And I think it's an important topic to understand the why rather than just how you bring it all together. Uh, mm -hmm. At least to start. I'm not saying one is more important, but I think the why is what is missing. I also like to talk about. So anything you would like to add? Anything I missed, anything you would like to wrap up with? And I'm going to be putting all your links, by the way, in the description. I think that. what you just that. said, Maria, when you said the why and not the how, I think if you if you understand the why, we don't need to talk about the how. Because if you understand the why, then you will work out how to do it. When I first started in research, I thought the hardest part was actually running, the, doing the interviews, the most important part. But now I know that the most critical part of every research project is the briefing. If you know what, you're, what, you're, what you want to get out of it and why you're doing it, why? Then you, the how is easy. I wouldn't go that far that it's easy then, but it makes it easier. <laughs> uh, but maybe one, one thing I would like to add, going to a different direction, but coming back to gut talks. We, we haven't talked about synth synthesis or analysis right now, but for me, 
that's a lot about gut as well. Because I always tell uh, juniors or, or clients I, I'm working with, is like when we're done with research, um, don't look at your notes, don't look at the recordings. Let's sit down and what does your gut tell me? Tell you, and our brains are quite well in remembering the really important things. You know the golden quotes, the changing observations we have. And if you go into research and afterwards you sit down and read, I don't know, 200 pages of transcripts, you're never going to get to that. So if you do research and you're done, sit down, sit down with your fellow researchers and chat about it. What struck your mind? What surprised you most? What was out there that you didn't expect? And that's actually a very good north star to what you found. Yeah. And always ask the question, so what? Mm-hmm. Because so it's what? not about it's not about regurgitating what you heard and what you saw. It's like Nina said, it's you do regurgitate it, but what should come out is the answer to so what. Yeah, and I can relate to this because you've been talking to those people for so many hours, and then you, or many of them, so you, you you would see straight away, you would know, okay, this is what comes out of it, and this is needed, and let's yeah. focus yeah. on yeah. it. Can yeah. I can I just bust a myth yeah, that yeah, I think sure. people maybe have? We don't ask people what they want. Yes. I think this is, we don't, I don't know, just in case that didn't come, because one of my favorite, favorite quotes that I, and, and I have it, I think on my, my LinkedIn profile, I don't know, is what people say, what people do, and what people say they do are entirely different things. Yeah, absolutely. Margaret, yes. Margaret yes. Mead, uh, anthropologist, this is something that guides my work a lot. Did, did I say ask people what they want? No, but I just oh, in okay. case people are, are listening just, to this, just in I'm case not. they're listening to this and they think, yeah, this is great. I'm going to go and talk to people about my new project product and I'm going to ask them how would how much would they pay for it, for example. Yeah, and they would go ask their mom <laughs> or their best friend and, you know. Yes, yeah. Yeah. that's always a not good choice. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being uh, on this podcast. It was really nice to see you again, actually. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. It starts with the gut. It ends with the gut. It's in your gut. Gut Talks.